you've been learning a lot about nutrition, health, wellness, and self-discovery. Since you began the program, you may have noticed some gradual and even significant shifts in your own health and lifestyle. Wherever you are right now is okay. As you embark on your coaching journey, you'll find that through coaching others, you'll bring about healing for yourself. Your role as a health coach will be to guide and mentor clients toward achieving their personal wellness goals. You will be trained to listen to your clients' concerns, to help them identify personal health challenges, to support them in actions they need to take, and to hold your clients accountable so they get their desired result. Now, how do you do that? Well, we've actually been showing you all along. We've introduced information to you and then encouraged you to try it for a bit to see how it goes. That's exactly how a coaching program works with a client. You'll learn about the importance of the six-month program, how it supports lasting change and produces breakthroughs unlike any other experience. The session structure and coaching principles, backed by psychological research and more than 20 years of empirical results, will support you to guide clients into those transformative aha moments. You'll learn to lead clients through a transformative program with training on the following coaching techniques. Holding a safe space, asking high mileage questions, practicing the art of the beginner's mind, using active listening and reflection, being comfortable with silence, setting effective goals, holding them accountable for their progress, and meeting them where they are, not where you want them to be. In the next part of the curriculum, we will cover these various coaching skills, and then you will be able to start identifying them in your demonstrations of actual health history and coaching sessions. It's one thing to learn the techniques, but it's quite another to see them in action and learn how to apply them. In the coaching skills curriculum, you'll also learn how to sign up clients for your program. This first step to signing up a client is the health history consultation, which is the bridge between a potential client and an actual client. You'll learn about this initial meeting, which gives both you and your potential client a chance to get to know one another and to determine whether or not you want to work together. We find that getting people to talk about their future health and goals helps them realize how they could benefit from working with a health coach for support in accomplishing these goals. The potential client gets to see what you're about, what the coaching process is like, how you work, and what you offer. And you get to decide whether or not the other person is someone you want to work with. It's a two-way street. Completing the health histories and practicing coaching sessions is essential to your development as a coach. As with most careers, becoming a good health coach takes experience. Throughout the curriculum, we'll encourage you to actively practice what you're learning with your accountability coach and with fellow classmates. Success and effort are deeply connected. Successful people do not sit on the sidelines worrying about whether or not they know enough or waiting until they feel ready. They take consistent action to move toward their goals. Don't get me wrong, successful people are 100% open to lifelong learning, but they recognize the importance of honoring where they are right now on their journey. We're going to provide you with tons of opportunities to get out there and practice the material. Still, your success is very much dependent on your willingness to put the learning into practice. Wherever you are right now is a wonderful place to be, and it's the perfect place to begin honing your coaching skills. Coaching clients to fulfill their health goals is an incredibly rewarding experience, but it takes time. Remain patient with yourself 
and with the process. The coaching technique is very different from how most of us have been initially taught to communicate. This unique style of communication will require awareness and becoming a seasoned health coach requires trial and error. You won't listen to a lecture and immediately nail a technique. You'll have to try it on for size, see how it fits, see how it feels. Beginning in this module, you'll learn all about health history consultations and your health history program resources. While we know you are eager to get started with coaching, we have strategically placed content throughout the program at a certain pace to give you the proper time to develop and refine your skills and gather experience. Ease into this process and enjoy it. In the modules to come, we will walk you through the who, what, where, why, when, and most importantly, the how of being a practicing health coach. For now, you'll want to get started reviewing all the coaching skills content in this module and begin getting as comfortable as possible with the process of conducting health history sessions. This is the beginning of your journey to turning potential clients into paying clients. I hope you've enjoyed this introduction to coaching skills in the curriculum. Have fun getting started, and we'll talk soon. Health history sessions are the foundation of your work as a health coach. Think about them as the gateway to securing clients. Today, we're going to cover the who, the what, the why, the when, the where, and the how of health history sessions so you can start mastering your coaching technique. Let's get started. The health history is a free initial consultation between an integrated nutrition health coach and a potential client. The health history session is a lot like a two-way interview where you're both sort of feeling each other out to see if you're a good match. The potential client wants to make sure they feel comfortable with you. They also want to get a sense of what working with a health coach would really be like. They'll likely be wondering what they'll get from this partnership and whether you are the right person to help them reach their goals. As the coach, the health history session is a chance to screen potential clients to determine whether or not they are a right fit for your practice. Every coach has unique skills that they bring to the table, and some coaches have had life experiences that uniquely prepare them to work with a specific group of people. As a coach, you are going to have a gut feeling about whether or not potential clients are the right fit for your coaching practice. And that's a good thing. You can't serve everyone. Your unique gifts are meant to support a unique group of people. And you want to be selective when choosing clients to work with so that you can conserve your energy for the people who are the best match for you. Likewise, you're looking for clients who are ready to be coached. If you doubt someone's commitment to a coaching partnership, you may spend several months trying to track down payment. Also, if you're giving your client recommendations and they aren't following through, they're not going to reach their goals. And you're going to end up feeling frustrated by the client's lack of commitment. Now, let's move on to the how and the where of health histories. You may be wondering, where does the health history session happen? Well, that's up to you. Many successful health coaches work remotely, via Skype or on the phone. Some coaches choose to partner with physicians or clinics or community or recreational centers that will provide an on-site meeting space. Still, other health coaches prefer to work in a hotel lobby, just like Joshua did when he started out. Or some work out of private offices or their homes or coffee shops. The list of options is truly endless you will want to spend time considering how you would like to facilitate your coaching. For some, face-to-face, in-person coaching will intuitively feel right. And for others, online coaching will immediately feel right. Likely, you aren't sure yet, and that's okay. As long as you aren't using your uncertainty as an excuse that holds you back from moving forward 
and practicing your coaching skills. The sooner you get clear on the type of coach you'd like to be, the sooner you can work on growing your thriving practice. And honestly, the more clear you are on your intentions, the more you're going to get out of this program. So let's address the how of conducting health history sessions. First, these sessions should be 50 minutes in length. And it is very important to communicate this to your potential client in advance and to stick to this timeline. It comes across as professional when you follow through on what you say you're going to do. Think about it. When you have a doctor's appointment or a hair appointment, the person providing the service doesn't voluntarily agree to talk to you well beyond the window of your appointment. That would interfere with their ability to see other clients. And it would come across to you as too casual. So be sure to value yourself as a professional with boundaries right from the start and your potential clients will walk away trusting that you follow through. And that will support their belief that you have what it takes to support them in meeting their goals. Once you've scheduled your appointment, be sure to give your potential client a blank health history form and ask that they return it to you prior to the session. You can find the health history forms in your health history resources which opened with this module. We have included forms in English and Spanish and separate forms for women, men, children, teens, seniors, and there's a general neutral form as well. While we have provided a variety of options, know that which form you use with each client is entirely at your discretion. The form will provide you with a snapshot of your potential client's overall health. It includes questions related to their social life, their medical history, and their diet. The day before a health history session with a potential client, we recommend calling or emailing them with a reminder of the date, the time, and the location of the session. It also helps to review their health history form, making notes about anything you'd like to explore further in the session. This shouldn't take much time. It's as simple as skimming your client's completed health history and making notes about items of interest. Something may jump out at you, and you're going to want to know more about it. Some coaches prefer to have their clients come a few minutes early to the session and fill out the health history form there. If you go this route, you would simply spend a few minutes reviewing the form at the start of the session. Feel free to experiment with different approaches and do what feels natural for you. Now, during the session, you're simply going to walk the client through their health history form with the intention of asking questions and learning more. It's really important that you recognize that the health history session is not a time for coaching. It's a time for deep listening and building a connection. Most people in today's busy world rarely experience deep listening. This will set you apart immediately. People are craving attention. So by simply demonstrating your ability to listen, you will show potential clients that you truly care, building their trust in your ability to help them. So rather than focusing on proving your worth or on what you're going to say, focus your energy on asking questions and on listening and on maintaining a calming presence. You may be surprised at how unnatural this feels at first, and that's okay. Just be gentle with yourself and know that you are growing as a coach each and every time you conduct a health history. At the end of the session, you'll summarize the ways you think you can support the potential client should they agree to work with you in a coaching program. And it's how you'll close the deal and sign clients up for your work together. Now, before you panic and think, I'm not ready to close the deal, or I don't know anything about facilitating a program, just take a deep breath. We are going to walk you through every single step in this program. And by the end, you will feel ready to coach with confidence. 
we found that our students do best when they have a chance to practice going through health history forms with classmates before they worry about the logistics of executing the entire health history session with a client. You'll learn more about the six-month program and closing the deal in future modules, so don't worry about either of these things just yet. Joshua encourages you to spend the next few modules practicing health histories with your classmates, with your friends, and with your family members who will be supportive of your efforts. The health history session is the foundation of what we do, and the more comfortable you become with discussing other people's health histories, the more effective you will be when it is time to start seeing real clients. In order to graduate, you are required to submit six health histories through the health history timeline of the Learning Center. To respect others' privacy, we do not require that you submit the actual health history forms that were filled out by your classmates, friends, and family. But we do ask you to provide general information from your session. While you are only required to submit information pertaining to six of the health histories you conduct this year, we encourage you to complete as many health histories as you can. Many of our students aim to conduct one or two a week, lining up a whole roster of potential clients by the time they reach the middle of the program and are ready to begin seeing clients. Okay, we have covered a lot here today. And before I go, I'd like to provide you with some simple ways that you can move forward. First, you can explore the health history resources that were released with this module. Go through the health history forms. Familiarize yourself with them. Second, go ahead and schedule a health history with a classmate or with your accountability coach. Remember, you're all trying this out for the first time and you're going to grow more and more each time you conduct a session. Oftentimes, getting started is the hardest part, but taking action will cure any fear that may be coming up for you around this process. And finally, trust the process. Focus on learning each step as it is revealed, and you will be on your way to building a thriving health coaching practice. Your job right now is to become comfortable holding space, and listening to clients as they discuss their health information. Okay, that's it for now. Have fun practicing, and I'll see you next time. Health history question and answer. Health histories are the core of any successful health coaching practice as they are the bridge between potential clients and paid clients. In this initial meeting, both you and your potential clients have the chance to get to know each other and determine if you want to work together the potential client gets to see what you're all about and what the coaching process is like how you work and what you offer plus you get to decide whether the person is someone you want to work with have fun with it the more you practice the more you build your confidence and find your own unique style whether or not you've experienced your first health history these answers to frequently asked questions will guide you in becoming more comfortable with the process. Question, how many health histories should I do? Answer, the key is practice, practice, practice. Although only six health histories are required per graduation, completing two per week is recommended. Question, who should I practice health histories with? Answer is, at first, it's best to ask fellow students to do health histories with you. Hone your skills and give each other support and feedback on areas where you can grow and develop. 
Once you've done a few with fellow students and feel more comfortable, you can practice with people outside the program who are certain will be supportive and open to process. Halfway through the program, you will be prompt to start doing health histories with potential clients. Question, how should I prepare for a health history session? Answer is familiar, familiarize yourself with the health history forms. Choose clothes that are professional yet comfortable, even if you're not conducting the session over the phone. Confirm the date and time of the session with your partner and center yourself by quieting your mind before the meeting. Should clients fill out the health history form before we meet or is during the session better? While we recommend asking clients to fill out the health history form before the session, part of the value individuality of coaching is getting to know what works for you and your clients. Try both and see what it feels right for you. What should I bring to each health history session? We recommend blank copies of your program agreement, program schedule, credit card authorization, welcome form, and goals form. Humor. Most people take health care too seriously. Having fun with your potential clients will, will lighten the mood and make them feel more comfortable. A beginner's mind. It's important to approach each session without preconceived notion or judgment. What are some practical tips to keep in mind during the health history session? While you learn tips throughout this module, here are some to get you started. Relax. Your potential clients are likely more nervous than you. Create a safe, supportive environment for you and your cl potential clients. Use the health history form as guide, but don't worry about addressing every question. Let potential clients talk and follow their lead. Don't give any recommendations. Please welcome Lisa. How are you? Good. Welcome. Please have a seat. Thank you. How are you doing sitting up here? I'm fine. Good. How did you hear about the school? Um, I actually got one of your postcards in the mail. Great. And I was very, very interested in, uh, I checked you out online and I loved what I saw and it's been a life-changing experience so far. Really? Already? Well, I've been trying to get myself together with health and some issues that I have and uh, yeah my whole house is organic now so I don't know if my husband likes it too much but <laughs> well that's a big accomplishment yes thank you okay so I'm going to be talking with you and sometimes I'll be talking with them and I'll go back and forth that way okay great okay so what did I just do the first you never have a second chance to make a first impression. So right there in the first minute, I created warmth, empathy, caring, listening, support. I'm not trying to move on fast and get to the facts. The actual relatedness is the most important part of the health history. Whenever I do health history in person, I 
offer them tea because they feel warm, hospitable. Must be a nice person. They offered me tea. <laughs> okay, it creates warmth. Then I'll go through the health history with them verbally. Okay, so you live in Clifton? Yes, Clifton, New Jersey. All right, how's that? Oh, it's great. It's great. I love Clifton. How long have you lived there? I've actually lived there about a little over two years. My husband and I bought a home there, and I have a business in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Okay. So the commute's not bad. Okay, and then I write everything down that she's telling me. So why? So you remember. Okay, Clifton, Fort Lee, two years. Also partly because people feel good when you are writing down what they say. Do you ever, like, when I, you know, do you ever feel like when you're in a doctor's office or a therapist's office and they're writing things, like, you're like, what are they writing over there? <laughs> so you want to be writing down what they're saying. It helps you pay attention and makes them feel like they're being heard. And uh, what's your husband's name? Gary. Gary. And how long have you been together? Uh, together four years, married a little over a year. Oh, so it's relatively new. Yes. How's that? Oh, very happy. <laughs> we like Gary? I, I do like my husband. <laughs> a lot of times you don't get that, but I like him and love him very much. That's beautiful. You see how I like I'm right there with her? We have this relatedness and you want to find ways besides, be, listen, besides becoming enamored with all the nutrition detail theories, I want you to become enamored with trying to figure out how to create connection with your clients. That's really, the whole nutrition thing is like a sideshow. Because basically all you're trying to do is get people to eat more fruits and vegetables and water and exercise. <laughs> and frequently I'll go into more questions about the relationship because it creates connection. And my favorite relationship question is, well, how did you two meet? Uh, we met at a bar. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. And? Well, you want me to elaborate? <laughs> I actually love telling this story. Um, People love telling the story. <laughs> So at the end, I'm just telling you this over 20 years experience, at the end, when she's deciding, should I sign up for his program? She's like, well, of course, he wanted to hear my uh, relationship story. Believe it or not, I would never have imagined when I started that that was an important component to getting clients to want to work with me. But over years, I realized you got to go, if you follow my simple instructions, you do these things that seem inconsequential, 
your ratio of clients from health history to six-month program will skyrocket. Okay. Um, I was out with my brothers, didn't want to be there. A few hours went by. My girlfriend noticed him, pointed him out. Yeah, he's cute. Um, he turned around. After about an hour, we clicked drinks. He said hello. Then he walked around the rest of the bar and tried to pick up every woman there. <laughs> Came back to me. He, he was inebriated because he just got there from a bachelor party. Um, he, I saw how drunk he was, but I absolutely thought he was adorable. So he asked me for my number. I told him we could exchange numbers. Um, I was a no-nonsense type of person. At the time, I was 33. I told him, if you're going to wait three days to call me, don't bother. <laughs> he called me that night at 4 in the morning when he got home. 14 months later, he proposed um, on, at the Rockefeller Center on the ice, December 18th. He had them clear the ice, play our song. Wow. He proposed after 14 months, and a year and a half later, we were married in Maui with our family. Thank you. Thank you. Let me ask you this. Do you think she's going to become my client now? see that it's way less about the nutrition and more about the interpersonal connection. There's no way, if you can get someone in your first five or ten minutes of your session to this place, then when it comes down later on in the session, there's no way they're going to not become your client. Okay, so now... Um, we're going to skip down, and so you're born in Texas? Yes, Wichita Falls, Texas. And under weight, your current weight is 143, a year ago was 151, mm -hmm. and you'd like to take it down further. Yeah, well, that would be my fighting weight, 130 to 135. I box, so I need to... <laughs> Um, I'm going semi-pro, and I need to get my weight down. Um, I'm too heavy for the class weight class that I need to be in. Okay. All right. <laughs> this is good. I, I, when I was starting to do this, I was like, I just couldn't believe the extent that people like spill the beans and tell everything. My life's an open book. I'm like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> But people, people like telling things, and you just go with the flow. And uh, so under relationship status, you wrote happily married, children. What are your thoughts and feelings about children? Oh, we're not having children. I had my husband neuter two years ago. anything more interesting than doing health histories. <laughs> Every session is like a mini drama epic. 
not have told you that? Good. That was good. So there's certain health things she wrote down here. Under sleep, she wrote down that she gets very little sleep. And um, under menstrual issues, she wrote down that she has certain menstrual, uh, ongoing menstrual issues. And under main health concern, you wrote down uh, smoking and asthma. Please say more about that. Um, I'm 37 years old. I've been smoking since I was 12. Mm-hmm. Really bad. Um, I've tried everything under the sun to quit, from the medications that are on the market, from the doctor to the patch, to the gum, to the filters, cold turkey. Every time I go cold turkey, my staff at work wants me to have a cigarette because they're ready to quit. <laughs> Um, and if anybody out there is a smoker, you understand. Um, and it does affect my performance at the gym. Um, not bad enough, though, to where I have quit. What about the asthma? Well, you have you smoke and you have asthma? Yes. Yes. Um, okay, I've hold, had, it, hold it right there. Okay. Right, like, when I got into this, I was like, I know, you're stupid. kidding. <laughs> In my head, I'm like, what? Are you stupid? <laughs> you, you will hear things in your health history where you're like, <laughs> and you're just breathing. And you're like, <laughs> A really, really big thing about the work that we do, which you may only get to realize after a few years is that the entire health history process is designed for your own personal transformation. And by that I mean you have a kind of a window into human behavior that is unprecedented. So you start to see people, her version of this, and then you think about your version of this. You know, where do you do these things? And so you get to observe human behavior because there's something we call the magic of mirroring. Everyone else in health, everyone else in healthcare, they're sitting there trying to get the client well. And many people in healthcare themselves, the professionals, are not that healthy themselves. One of the reasons our graduates look so healthy and happy is because the underpinnings of the system is that while you're working on the client's wellness, they're only there to mirror for you areas in your own well-being that require attention. And through synchronicity, your clients will show up with issues that you yourself uh, are a little bit missing in prioritizing. Like, for example, you know, I used to be a smoker, randomly she's having smoking issues. That kind of random coincidence, synchronicity, is like deep part of our program. But you know, it's, life is, not, is non-random. And the way you see that best is through the health history consultation process. So that's basically what a health history is. I mean, you just, you're being you, you're, going a little more health-oriented. 
but you, you know how to do this. Maybe you need to do it 10 times, 20 times to get experience, but there's no magic to hear. You get to this part in the program, this part of health history, maybe you ask them about their foods that they're eating, things like that, and then afterwards you say to them something like this. Okay, well, uh, so we've come to the end of the health history. There's a lot of things here which uh, we've talked about and that I think I can help you with. Uh, certainly with the smoking, having been someone who tried to quit uh, several times before I could do it successfully, okay. I feel confident that I could help you with that process. And also in the areas of sleep and stress, uh, I think that those are things that you know we could talk about and work through in a six month program. Great, you're hired. All right. <laughs> A lot of times people are jumping out of their chair. They don't ask you how much it costs. They don't want to know how often you meet. They're, they're just so astounded that someone in the healthcare system, because a lot of times it's just like a, you know, what's called assembly plant. You know, you wait in the waiting room for an hour, half an hour if you're lucky. You come into the office for 15 minutes and you leave with a prescription. To meet someone who they got to spend uh, half an hour, 45 minutes with, who actually like looks healthy, who cares about them, they're like, sign me up. And if that happens, great. If it doesn't happen, then you do the following. You say, um, would you like to hear about my six-month program? Yes, I would. Okay, so what would happen is we would meet, like we did today, uh, twice a month. And each time we would go through areas of your health that are of most concern to you. And each time I would give you one, two, or three recommendations that are personalized for you. So we would talk about what to prioritize, you know, the weight loss for the boxing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> maybe that's your priority. Because if you quit smoking, maybe you'll gain weight. So I'm gonna ask you what you wanna prioritize for now. And then step by step, we'll work on this together. And you have to say this line over and over again, like, but I feel confident that I can help you get through this. Does that sound like something you're interested in? That sounds great. great. Yes, definitely. Now, how much is it? All right. <laughs> and you just want to go through this over and over again with them, like what we, what we call selling and reselling the program. Once they say, yes, I want to do it, you just kind of go over it again with them so that they don't have this thing that's called buyer's remorse. If they get home and they're like, what did I just do? I don't even know that guy. <laughs> and then I also noticed, like your mother, in terms of she mentioned that she has low thyroid. Yes. And how's your thyroid? Um, I've been getting it checked every year. So far, it's fine. Okay. All right, so we would focus on the smoking and the weight loss and the stress and the sleep. The sleep, yes. Coffee? You like coffee? Uh, yes, I actually have cut down from six to eight cups a day to one sixteen ounce. That's great. Thanks.
so yeah, we would meet twice a month each time we would go through it. The cost of the program is $195 a month. And that will include our sessions. And then each time I would also give you certain books or CDs or other materials included in the cost of the program. Oh, okay. How does that sound? That sounds really good. Would we be doing this over the phone or in person? We will be meeting in person. Great. Usually whatever way you have your initial consultation, you'll keep it as the way you do your six-month program. All right. Please give her a hand. Thank you, Joshua. It's a pleasure. Health History Demo with Client Lisa. Coaching Skills Practice. We start by identifying the key expert coaching skills used in Health History Demo with Joshua Rosenthal and Client Lisa. Then, experiment with them in your practice Health History sessions. As you become comfortable with them, think of new skills you can incorporate into your session with clients. Use this worksheet to boost your confidence and soon, you'll be guiding clients through transformation sessions. 1. Active Listening Joshua Rosenthal writes down important details so he can reference them later, but he does not let note-taking interfere with his active conversation with Lisa. What are 5 ways you can incorporate active listening with your client in your next practice health history? Skills I can use to incorporate active listening. Example, pay attention to my client's body language and tone of voice. Number two, coaching presence. Joshua Rosenthal established his presence as the coach in a number of ways. He listened to Lisa and retained important details like the names of her family members and the length of her relationship. He inserts these details into the conversation to show that he is present in the space with her. What are 5 ways you can create coaching presence with your client in your next practice health history? Skills I can use to create coaching presence. Example, empty my mind of everything I need to do and anywhere I need to be. Number 3, the coaching agreement. Joshua Rosenthal clearly lays out the six-month program at the end of the session and shares how it will be personalized for Lisa. What are five ways you can establish the coaching agreement with your client in your next practice health history? Skills I can use to establish the coaching agreement. Example, communicate logistics of scheduling and fees. You want to have fun in your work. When I got into this, I'm like, oh my God, everyone is so serious. And I just promised myself to, you know, you're working all day. It's most of your life is spent in your work. So I just said, I'm going to make this fun. Number one, be yourself. Do not try to be somebody else. A lot of you will try to be, uh, you know, more professional, or you try to be me. Last year we had someone who actually like shaved his head. <laughs> Seriously, I was like, don't try to be me. You try to be you. 
There's only one you, and they're coming to see you because you're you. So if you then start being not you, they're going to be less interested than if you're going to just be you. Right? Isn't it endearing? I get to be me, like the human real me. Right? You like that? And your clients will like it as you are more authentic. So a little bit you have to want to you know, try to be professional. You have to have your environment and your setting and your timing all be done professionally. But don't be afraid also to be yourself. Ask about family. I asked her about how she met Gary. Ask about children and ask about pets. The big thing I never would have imagined was that if you ask people about their pets and let them go on about their pets and write down the name of their pets, the chances that they become your client go up a lot. Be interested, ask good questions. Do not exceed 50 minutes. Some of you will need to have a little timer. I remember I got a massage from someone, and uh, I don't know what. They, I guess they were trying to uh, make sure they did a good session. And while I was getting the massage, they were like, and I was like, this has been going on forever. And so I asked afterwards, I asked her, like, well, what happened? She's like, well, I just wanted to make sure I did a great massage on you. And I was like, okay, that's great. I noticed the next time I got a massage that she had a timer. And then the timer went off. She's like, I have to end now. Right? So some of you will not know how to end. You'll feel like by giving the client more time, you're doing a better job. But you're not. You're going to have a lot of clients. You're a busy person. You don't get paid anything extra for doing it longer. If you have difficulty with boundaries, get a timer. Allow the client to speak. Do not give... Did I give her any advice? I was like biting my tongue. <laughs> you ask good questions. I think the thing for me, how I could quit smoking, was I had to slow down uh, my life. You know, it's like speed. smoking is like speed. You know, it's like you smoke it and, and you have more energy, go, go, go. And, you know, if she's working 70 hours a week and boxing and this, uh, she needs the cigarettes like she needs the caffeine to keep going. So something has to give somewhere. But the reason those patches and filters and things don't work is because she is spending more energy than she has, so she has to get it from somewhere else. A lot of times smokers need hot air in their lungs. So using like a sauna, they're like breathing in hot air is very helpful. Being out in nature, but mostly for her, she's like trying to do too many things all at once. And uh, it's like being in Europe and you do 10 cities in 10 days. And then when you look at the pictures afterwards, you're like, like, is that Berlin or is that London? And today, because there's so many opportunities available, especially for women, uh, people are trying to cram in so many things that they're 
they're not present to what they're actually enjoying because they're thinking about the next thing while they're doing the first thing and like that. Take good notes, especially in the health history. You, you want them to see you're taking notes and you're not going to remember all this, so you need to write it all down. Remember that they're more nervous than you are. You're going to be in there, it's your first session, you don't really know what to say, so just remember that people generally going to a healthcare setting are nervous. And most important, be ultra-cautious with family and friends. There is some way, some reason that family members, especially older siblings and your father, who, while you're doing the health history with them, will try to point out to you how little you know <laughs> and what a bad idea this is and how really you should be going to uh, some other school or some other profession. And that's demoralizing. So when you are doing health histories, you want to avoid people where you think you might and usually they're the people you want to help the most so they uh, sidetrack their own smoking asthma issue by then attacking you with other stuff but you really you know it's your sister or it's your dad you really want to with all your heart help them but for now you need to avoid them so that you can get more confidence and speak with the people who actually want your help it's like if someone's alcoholic. The only time you can help someone is when they have bottomed. They know they need help. But you try talking to someone before that, and it's just not registering. Same thing with this. People are alcoholic about food and lifestyle. They're addicted to coffee, cigarettes, junk food. 90% of America. You can cherry pick out of that millions and millions of people, the ones who are ready for you, which become much more like an ideal client than the people who are not ready for you. Clear? Okay, you promised me you're not going to work with people who, don't, who aren't ready for you. You're, there's millions of people who are looking for you, and you want to work with those people and sidestep the ones that are not. Please welcome Kate Johnson. Okay. Welcome. Thanks for volunteering to do this. Thanks for having me. And so I'll be talking with you today and talking with them some of the time. And so it's always important at the beginning of a session to just know that your client is probably a bit nervous. A bit nervous? <laughs> and just give them space for that and create a good connection at the beginning. When I did sessions at the start, I would give people a cup of tea, just make sure they really felt at home and made the environment where I did the counseling feel safe for them. 
you have a copy of Kate's health history in your handouts this week, so you can follow as we go through this process. So you are 26 and about to have your birthday coming up. Any plans for your birthday? Yeah. Hoping to get an engagement ring. Right. <laughs> well, well, That's well. That's my plan. <laughs> that sounds pretty exciting. Yeah. Okay, a lot of times you want to be very present because the things that your client will say in the first minute of the session is a compass for where the whole session will go. Like I may think speeding by, well, I got to get to her health concern. But from the one minute, I can tell that the biggest thing in her life right now is this. And so we want to be able to notice that. If you're doing health history, you'd circle or take a note expecting engagement. So then next time you're like, well, what happened? <laughs> okay, and you live in Minnesota. How is that? Wonderful. It's the best state, I think. <laughs> you're born there, and what do you love about Minnesota? The seasons. I love the fall and the spring. Not so much the winters being so long, but the seasonal change. Okay, and you live in a city or? Yeah, a suburb of Minneapolis. Okay. And under weight, you wrote uh, your current weight six months ago, a year ago, and you'd like it to be lower. A few pounds lower? Just a couple. And relationship, seven years you've been together. Mm-hmm. And, the, yeah, waiting for the ring. <laughs> Last time we were here, it was on our seven-year anniversary for the first week in the class. I thought, maybe nothing. <laughs> he told me I wasn't supposed to talk about that. That's okay, we won't tell him. <laughs> Do you see how I'm not doing anything? <laughs> I just stick to the basics. What's his first name? Luke. And how did you meet? Uh, in a college in a theology class. He was the guy in front that always asked questions right when it was about time to go. <laughs> okay, so right away I know that there's strong spiritual component to their relationship, which informs a lot about what's happening. And uh, under children, you wrote someday. You ready to have children? Yep. We have two cats, so we got practice. <laughs> a boy and a girl? Yep. One of each. And what are their names? Fuzzy and Tank. What, what? 
Cozy and tank. Cozy and tank. <laughs> what am I doing? I'm writing it down. I'm, hopefully the person becomes my client. They're going to be astounded next time if I ask, well, how's fuzzy and tank? <laughs> and somehow that safety and that familiarity uh, helps people in their healing process. You know, a lot of times you go to a health care office and you feel like they're just pushing you through like you're a number. You know, do you know what I mean? Like next. And this is really remarkably different to be in a healthcare setting where someone is noticing you and having a personal connection. And that empowers the individual's own self-healing mechanism to strengthen. Occupation as registered nurse. How's that going for you? Very stressful. People are getting sicker and sicker. And every day it's just very stressful. I feel like a hypocrite when I give them a pill when they're having all these problems. When I want to hand them an apple. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or some water. You're sure you can give them a pill with like a lot of water. <laughs> this is an unusual pill. You need to drink a quart of water. Here you go. <laughs> I always, you know, really encourage people to have fun in their work and uh, see how it goes. What kind of nursing do you do? I work in the float pool, so I go all over. Wherever they need me, I go. I'm a fill-in. And under hours, you wrote 40 plus. So what does plus mean? Well, I come in early to get organized, and I usually do... What does early mean? About 45 minutes early. Look through all their stuff on the computer, so I have a plan. And then it just kind of streamlines my whole night, which is much easier than rolling in there right when you're about to start. So. Okay, so you working the night shift often? Evening, night, 17-hour double shifts with four hours of sleep in between. (laughs) It's a nightmare. (laughs) All right, that's always a point where I just, you know, if I was just working with her, I wouldn't say anything now for like a minute or 30 seconds just because what I can see from here, partly she's smiling and partly she has tears welling up in her eyes, (laughs) like wondering to herself... Why am I doing this? And that part is so much more valuable than me asking her, like, why are you doing this? (laughs) Under health concerns, lack of sleep, lack of therapeutic exercise, disordered eating, difficulty establishing normal eating patterns due to work schedule, chronic constipation since childhood. I put down insomnia, kind of. Yeah. That's a long list for someone who's 26 to have already going on. Well, if I quit my job, I could eliminate about half of those. (laughs) I'm not going to do that, though. Okay. Under other concerns, you wrote stressed out. Um, No real other serious illnesses. Health of your mother, breast cancer survivor. How's your mom doing? She's doing good. I've recommended a lot of books to her. Mm -hmm. And I have a strong family history, so that's why I'm here. 
prevention. Strong family history of breast cancer. Every female blood relative has had some form of cancer in my family, so. Oh, it's pretty serious. And uh, so how long ago was your mother diagnosed with breast cancer? January of 04. And what happened? What did she do for that? She had a unilateral mastectomy, chemo, radiation, and they stopped all of her HRT, obviously, because it was estrogen positive, so. Say that again, they stopped what? Oh, her, humo- her hormone replacement for menopause. Yeah, like, if you don't know what they're talking about, it's okay to ask, like, because people will, like, run through health concerns, like, in shorthand, because they're a bit uncomfortable with the whole thing, and it's okay for you. Like, I didn't really know what she was talking about, and I've been doing this a long time. So you don't have to pretend. It's like, okay, yes. <laughs> it's, you can just be yourself, and you can say, can you run that by me again a little slower? Well, that's a lot to have your whole family history like that. They've all been good. I mean, they've responded to treatment, so it's been a good so far, good story so far. And so you get regular exams? Mm-hmm. and They recommend an MRI um, at age 30, so a couple years. Okay, how... I mean, how scared would you be if you were in this situation? Right? There's like this disconnect, which is unbelievably routine in our society to have health history in the family like this, and yet setting up the body with stress and overwork, which only increases the likelihood of dysfunction in the body. And here you're talking to someone who is in the health field, someone who really knows better, but still can use a hand, can use help in having her love herself enough to be able to create a different possibility. But how much more so in normal society, people don't see that they're setting up themselves for these problems later down the road. Father's health is excellent. Excellent. Strong guy. He looks 20 years younger than he is. And his dad is 96 and healthy too, so. That's great. And are you more like your father or more like your mother? My mom. He tells me that every day. Ancestry, Swedish, German, English, Polish, blood type A, sleep well, no. And then under birth control, you wrote that you were taking birth control for about five years, but now not? Yeah, ever since my mom's cancer, I thought I probably shouldn't be taking hormones, so stopped. So I get to this point, and I would say, wow, there sounds like there is really a lot here that I could work with you on. I agree. Your concerns about your health, your mother's health, uh, your level of stress in your life, 
uh, are things I feel really confident that I could help you with, and I would love to do that. Would you be interested in working with me? You're hired. <laughs> and so that is the process. As soon as you can see that there, it's a pretty clear connection that they're going to work with you, you can just move to that point in the session. Uh, what I'm going to do now is uh, invite Kate to come back. We're going to skip through whatever I would do to tell her about the program. And uh, I'm going to invite Kate to come back. And you'll see what I would do in a first session with a client. I wouldn't, in the first session, start giving them recommendations. I would do the paperwork. There's a contract. We would do the payment and things. I maybe would get into one recommendation at that time, but I certainly wouldn't get into a slew of things. But I would schedule our first appointment to be as soon as possible afterwards. Any questions? Anything? How has this a lot happened for you doing this, huh? Yeah, well, I just, I know I shouldn't be sleeping so horribly and doing this to myself, but come June, I can switch my schedule maybe. Yeah, we want you to live a long and happy life uh, with Luke. And Fuzzy and Tank. And Fuzzy, you see that? <laughs> and uh, I, I feel really confident. I'm, I'm glad that you're up here working with me, and uh, I think this will be really impactful in a positive way for your life. This is an amazing thing. It definitely is. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Health History Demo with Client Kate, Coaching Skills Practice. Review the coaching skills used in Health History Demo with Joshua Rosenthal and Client Kate and incorporate them into your practice health history sessions. As you read through each section, take some time to brainstorm and write down coaching skills that you can use with your future clients. Use this worksheet to boost your confidence and soon you'll be guiding clients through transformational sessions. 1. Trust and Intimacy Joshua Rosenthal tells us that he usually offers a cup of tea to clients so they feel at home and they know they're in a safe, comforting environment. What are five ways you can establish trust and intimacy with your clients in your next practice health history? Skills I can use to establish trust and intimacy, for example, so that I am happy to see my client. Number two, beginner's mind. Joshua Rosenthal is practicing a beginner's mind and open not to knowing all the answers. He asked Kate to clarify medical terminology. He explained that it's okay to be yourself and ask when you're unsure. What are five ways you can create beginner's mind with your clients in your next practice health history? Skills I can use to create beginner's mind, let go of the need to be an expert. Number three, direct communication. Joshua Santala reframes Kate's long list of health concerns to raise her self-awareness. 
What are five ways you can create direct communication with your client in your next practice health history? Skills I can use to create direct communication, for example, state session goals and the purpose of each exercise clearly. Don't do well beyond, you know, in front of the podium, so I'm going to walk around a little bit. And I so appreciate how, one, you've taken the time to come here and be part of this conversation today. Because I think of this as a conversation and part of the continuing journey of who we are. So, I want to tell you a little story before we begin. We talk about presence. When I was about seven years old, I had the great fortune of spending the summer with my favorite aunt. Does everybody have that favorite aunt, that favorite uncle, you know that favorite one? Like we've all got that person. And this particular aunt um, never married, never had children, but she traveled the world and she came back with amazing stories. And I was a little girl that grew up in a small beach community in New England and a Roman Catholic family. And I didn't know much beyond that life. So that summer, I went out to Wyoming and she introduced me to all kinds of cultural traditions from indigenous communities, the Lakota Sioux, the Cherokee Nation, and my mind was blown. But in the midst of that, one day she asked me, do you want to come sit quietly with me? And I thought, that sounds boring. But then I remembered she was my favorite aunt, so there must be something to it. So I climbed up in this big chair she had, this big armchair, tucked my legs underneath me, and the only thing she said to me as she placed her hands on my head was quiet here so you can be here. And somehow my seven-year-old mind just felt good. And so for the next several minutes, we sat quietly. She never told me I was meditating or I was focusing on my breath. She just said, quiet here so you can be here. And when I was finished, she said, when you feel complete, go ahead and get up. So if you ask my seven-year-old self, how long did you sit? I would be like, for hours, like four hours at least. I'm sure it was 60 seconds or maybe two minutes. But here's what I knew, even at that young age, is that there were moments in time where we could give ourselves permission and pause to reset and replenish so that then how we showed up the rest of the day or even in the next moment was meaningful, grounded, and connected. And so I would jump up when I was done and I would go off and enjoy my day. And that lesson really helped me as I began to grow in my life, in my profession. And the word she left me with was always remember that it's not good enough to have a worldview, a community view, or a worldview that all of us, and she said, including you, must have a human view. So with that, I began to move about the world. I started to, um, I went to college, I went to law school, I practiced law, I moved to the business side, and throughout it all, I kept noticing something interesting, that the way people were showing up was really dependent upon whatever quiet suffering was happening behind the scenes. And I realized that everybody was suffering with something that we knew nothing about. 
no matter how well put together they looked, no matter how nice they seemed, everybody has something. And the second thing, especially in those challenging times that I always was able to remember, is that everybody is also someone's precious child. And so when you hold those things at top of mind, you begin to think, well, what is presence? How do I begin to inform the nature and quality of my presence so that not only do I show up my best self, but I also am a gift or a blessing to those that I'm interacting with? Because presence means something. Presence is a present. It is a gift to other people and ourselves. And I pulled some information, some kind of you know, definitions from Webster's Dictionary, and they say this about presence, a noteworthy quality of poise and effectiveness. Now, interestingly enough, when you think about this, def this part of the definition, it kind of looks like how you view other people. Oh, they have poise, and they have, they're very effective in how they speak to people and how they get people to get things done. But there is an inner reflection, a reverse reflection about sort of presence that is intentional and is built upon self-awareness. So that when our presence is solid and grounded, then we create something really magical for ourselves and others. So there's a felt sense of another person's energy, influence, and impact, as well as a felt sense of our own, which helps build our confidence. Now, why is that important? Because here's the thing, we all want to be, feel, heard, valued, seen, and connected. Because it's through the connection where the juice is. It's through the connection that each of us begin to be courageous, to step out, to lean in, and become the, become the kinds of coaches, parents, community leaders, organizational leaders that we're meant to be. So connection, when we think about that, is to join, link, or fasten together, to unite or bond. Think about that, a bond. How do we create a bond? Imagine, we're gonna get into this in a little bit, in a few minutes when we talk about some of the neuroscience, the brain science, but think about the words unite and bond. And then think about what's happening in our country today, in our communities today. Do we have enough people uniting? Do we have enough of us bonding over the things that really matter for us? Because we have so far more in common than we do different. It's about being in affiliation and alliance with others. But there are some real things that prevent us from being in connection. And we're gonna talk about those in a few minutes. But before we get there, the, the one sort of connection I want to make is that our presence matters too because it also informs the kind of power we yield. And I'm not talking about the kind of power that is based on a title or a role in an organization. This is the kind of power we wield when we just talk to people. We're talking to our clients, we're coaching people. When we're parenting, when we're moving throughout the street, what is the power that gets expressed in our presence? So there are a couple of things that are interesting about this notion of power. We all want to live a meaningful life, a purposeful life, 
And in fact, there's been some really interesting studies over the last couple of years about this whole notion of purpose. Now, we've probably all had experiences in our lives where we felt like, this work that I'm doing right now really doesn't matter. I don't feel like it matters, which then we internalize on some level is feeling like, then I don't matter. What I'm doing doesn't matter, so I'm not making a difference. Well, about five, let's see, yeah, about five years ago in 2014, there was a book that came out by Aaron Hurst called The Purpose Economy. And in it, it looks, at, it looks at how things are changing, how organizations are changing, and how all of us in this room and outside of this room are beginning to demand that we all move with a sense of purpose. A sense of purpose that ladders up to something bigger and greater than we are. Gone are the days, or quickly fleeting are the days, that we work with people and organizations that don't care about what happens, their impact, beyond this immediate circle. So Aaron Hurst predicted that by the year 2020, the demand for purpose would grow by 300% by consumers like you and me. Then there's some other interesting stories about how things are shifting. And the reason these are important is because as coaches, whether we are talking about nutrition or other things, the reality is you are coaching the whole person. We are interacting with all of the person in front of us, even though a particular topic may relate to something specific. So in Deloitte's report, they talked about how not only is purpose important, but the way we work is shifting. How many people work outside of their homes or in a remote office these days, or know people who do in their own offices? There is a growing, not only trend, but desire to have more flexibility in where we show up and how we do what we do. We all want to have mastery and autonomy over our skill sets and our gifts, and the world of work is starting to recognize that. So even when we're coaching, we may start to see and hear and experience conversations of people feeling like, I just feel like I can't be me. I can't do this. And so it shows up in my eating and my self-care and all kinds of ways that prevent me from being who I truly am. And then last but not least, the World Economic Forum has a, um, a conference every year in Davos, Switzerland. And it is profound, the kinds of things they talk about. But one thing that comes out of the World Economic Forum is their annual report. And in this annual report, they talk about what are the skills that people are going to need to do? What, are, what, what is being called upon for all of us to show up differently in the world? And one of the things they talk about is emotional intelligence. And it consistently shows up in the top 10 or even top five each of the last few years. So let's dig into what all this means. This is leading up to this bold statement that what we're all being asked to do, what we're being called to do, is inner work for outer impact. Whether us as individuals or the people that we coach and interact with, there's so much more because people want to be free to be themselves. So, you may be asking, well, that's interesting. Sure, I like to take care of myself. I like to be and do good in the world, but how exactly do I do that? Where do I start? And here's what I would suggest. That one of the most critical things that we can do for ourselves is to really enhance 
our emotional intelligence skills. Emotional intelligence helps us be aware, helps us cultivate our awareness of self, our body awareness, or our mind, our thoughts, emotions. And once we can identify that for ourselves, then it makes it easier to see that in other people. So it's awareness of self and others, and we have to remember that all of this happens in context. None of our work, none of our self-work happens in a vacuum. So we have to think about the broader context, the ecosystems, intersectionalities. So looking at self, others, and surroundings, and then bringing that together to help build a strong, strong foundation. So let's think about what is actually, actually emotional intelligence. This particular definition is one that I like to use because it's very clear about the components of it. It says that emotional intelligence <clears throat> is the ability to monitor your own and others' feelings and emotions, to discriminate between what's theirs and what's yours, and then to use that information in a beneficial way to help bridge conversation, collaboration, community, and connection. And when we use the word monitor in this context, what we're talking about is awareness. Most importantly, self-awareness. Because self-awareness actually is the foundational domain, the foundational skill set of emotional intelligence. None of the other skills under the emotional intelligence umbrella would work if we did not and do not practice, cultivate, and embody self-awareness. So there are a couple of things that fall into the bucket, if you will, of emotional intelligence. Has anybody heard of emotional intelligence before? Yeah. Okay, so for those in the room who haven't, it's kind of interesting. So in the early 90s, um, Peter Salavoy and, and Mayer, um, they're academics currently to this day, and I think uh, in New Hampshire and at Yale, and they started to, to create and talk about this notion of, hey, there's an intelligence we have around our emotions and the, the kind of impact that has and the influence it has then on our decision-making and our behavior. Now, some of the early work was a little clunky and kind of difficult to understand. So then, in the mid-1990s, a man by the name of Dan Goleman began to popularize it by putting it into everyday language that we could understand. And as part of that, he helped to consolidate it into some key buckets. And that's the four you see up here. So we look at awareness, emotional balance, empathy and compassion, and leadership, which includes mentoring and coaching. So awareness, as we already talked about, is awareness of self, others, and our surroundings. And you can imagine how powerful that awareness is in the field of coaching work. To understand what rises up for you when you're working with somebody, noticing it, and being able to manage yourself appropriately to skillfully navigate the conversation and bring your client around to their own discoveries. Emotional balance. This often is referred to in some of the early literature as self-management, and then earlier than that was self-regulation. It always sounded really harsh to me. I, I would have images of a straitjacket kind of just regulating myself, you know? Can't do it. But emotional balance is a much gentler, real way that we live. We are sort of undulating on the, the waves and the currents of what's happening in our world. There's this term called VUCA. Any former military in the room or anybody who has heard the term VUCA before? 
So VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Anybody's day ever like that? <laughs> ever? Yeah. So sometimes we have a plan. It might even be a plan for a coaching session. And then something happens and it blows the plan all up. And whatever our agenda was for the day is just not going to happen. And so VUCA means like things are dynamic and things are not as clear. So how do you pick what's first? And how do you take care of yourself in the midst of it? This is where emotional balance comes in. And then I would be remiss if we didn't talk about empathy and compassion. Because for a long time, I come from the corporate space and the legal world, and we didn't talk about that stuff there. In fact, this kind of means you're a little weak if you do. But here's the problem with that. There's a human on the other side. And so if you cannot express empathy and kindness and self-compassion for yourself and others, we then begin to create and set forth dynamics that are exactly what we have in many situations today. We get stuck in our positions without really moving towards our shared interests. I gotta be right. I remember one time, my husband and I are coming up on our 25th wedding anniversary next month. And he uh, and I, when we first got married, I remember there was just this little thing, just this little thing that used to just drive me crazy. We bought our first house and he promised that he would mow the lawn. Like that was gonna be his thing. He was gonna mow the lawn and he was gonna take care of it, make sure it was cut every week. And he would wait 10 days, 15 days. So you can imagine what our lawn looked like in the growing season. And it was so often, I remember one time picking up the phone and calling my mother saying, I just can't, I mean, it's a simple thing, I don't understand. And she said, well, is it more important that he do it or that it get done? And I was like, both. <laughs> I don't want to do it. And I didn't promise to do it, you know? And so there is this thing. And so I had it really, her question, even though I was very flip in my answer, her question made me think, well, what's going on here? I wasn't even asking the question of him and to him about like, what's, what's up? Like, wh why is this a challenge? Do we need to revisit our agreement and, and figure something else out? When you make this commitment, do things change so that it's not so easy? But well, here's what we do. We often want to be judged by our intentions, but we frequently and almost always judge others by their impact. So if their impact to you was unpleasant or unkind, we just know that's what they meant. Of course they did. How would you not know that that's what would, it would happen? But then consider the reverse. How many times have you had an experience in your life where you did something and then all of a sudden you realize somebody was upset and you're like, oh, I didn't mean that. That wasn't my intention. So we are very generous with the understanding around intention versus impact when it's our behavior, but not so much when it's somebody else's. So keeping in mind the tension between intention and impact, that it may not be the same. And so our job when we're trying to make sure that we're cultivating self-awareness is to check, is to continuously check. How's my intention and impact matching or not? Do I need to make any adjustments? And then last is in the coaching and leadership position, and again, leadership, not about title. 
leadership is who we are, who we show up. It could be about title. You may have uh, authority in an organization or in a relationship that gives you leadership power, but leadership goes so far beyond that. In fact, I heard a, I saw a quote, many of you may have seen it run around sort of LinkedIn from time to time, and it says, leadership is not about being in charge, it's about caring for those in your charge. And so we have to think about how do we pull these things forward to help inform how we show up as leaders, how aware we are of the three dynamics, self, others, and the surroundings, the context, and then how does that get expressed through our leadership power? People ask all the time, well, okay, if I'm not self-aware, holy cow, what if I'm in that sort of 80% of people that aren't self-aware, what do I do? How can I cultivate that? And one of the ways, one of the skill sets that we do, that we can use to develop, to develop self-awareness is the practice of mindfulness. Now let me just say, for anybody who's conjuring up images of people sitting in lotus position and all kinds of body twisting shapes and sizes, um, that could be mindfulness meditation. But simply being fully present is mindfulness. So let's talk a little bit about the distinction between mindfulness and mindfulness meditation. So mindfulness simply means being fully present in the moment. It's paying, on, paying attention in the present moment, on purpose, non-judgmentally. So imagine what that would be like in a conversation. Somebody's actually giving you their full attention. So I did say, I think, I told you I went to law school, practice law. Any lawyers in the room? Okay, okay, I see a couple. Don't hate me. I'm just going to say this because I'm just going to say it. So I was trained to dissect everything you said so that by the time you were finishing saying it, I could present a different argument that explained to you why you were just quite frankly wrong. And, um, and I didn't even do litigation. I was corporate and technology, and I, but I was trained to look for the risk. I was trained to look for the holes in the problems. So how fun do you think it was to have a conversation with me? <laughs> I remember one day saying to somebody who, who just generally gave their opinion about something, and I said, where's your proof? Where's your, what, what study supports that? And they're like, I just like cheeseburgers. Uh, you know? <laughs> so, so mindfulness is giving the gift of your full presence. How do we become mindful? There are tons of tools. Any athletes in the room that love to run or jog or musicians who like to play music, in fact, I've heard of people who love numbers so much that they get into this flow and this zone when they're working with numbers. There are many things we can do to help cultivate our capacity for mindfulness. And this matters in the work that we do because if we're not paying attention, we are not hearing what our clients are saying. There's some research that was done in Finland about six years ago. And what they did was took a cross-sectional study. It was cross-cultural, cross-gender, cross-age in Europe and Asia. And they gave the participants two silhouettes, blank silhouettes of the human body. And next to them, they put, you know, like a, a word that would reflect it in emotion or a picture. And they asked them to color in one silhouette where they felt an increased sensation in the body. And in the other silhouette, if they noticed it, there were other parts of the body that, that maybe decreased in sensation. And then they merged the maps. And they got these heat maps of the body. And here's what they found, that regardless of age, regardless of culture, regardless of gender, 
we all tend to hold the same genera uh, general emotions and the same areas of our body. There was a research study done at Iowa State University called the Iowa Gambling Task. And what they did was they gave two, four decks of cards to participants in the study, two red and two blue. And they said, hey, we want you to play this game so that you maximize your winnings. Game, one of the gambling games, like blackjack or something. What they did not tell them was the red deck was rigged. There was just not enough winning with the red deck. The way to maximize your, mini your winnings was to play with the blue deck. So they continued to play. And at about 50 cards, they started to have a hunch, like something's up. Like, I'm not sure what it is, but there's something suspicious. I think it might be something going on with the red deck. Not sure. They kept playing. And how many cards do you think it took until they realized the red deck was rigged? 10? What else? 53? It took 80. 80 cards until people were like, ah, that's it. Here's how you play the game. Those cards don't work. These cards work. And here's what you do. They could just boom, boom, boom. Now, great. But here's the other thing they did in this study. Now, most of us may know that the sweat glands in our bodies react to heat, to temperature. That's why when you're standing up here in lights, you might perspire, or you're out in a hot day. Those glands respond to temperature and heat, except for the ones in your hands. So what they did was they attached electrodes, the kind that you, you wear in a lie detector test, to detect perspiration in the hands. These respond to stress. So what they found was that just 10 cards in, just 10, which is 40 below a hunch, before a hunch, and 70 before full cognitive thought, the body began to perspire as they reached more for the red decks, and then they began to reach more for the blue. So what did we learn? We learned that there was wisdom and information that was happening in the body that was impacting our behavior and decision-making before it became full cognitive thought. So imagine that. Imagine coaching a client and things are happening in the body that you're not aware of and it is already impacting what you say to the client or how potentially you're interpreting the experience and then what you decide to say and do as a result. So it's extremely important to understand our body maps and to understand that the reason we need to do that is because there's this gap between when it shows up in our bodies and it becomes full cognitive thought that we are dancing in the middle here. So that is partly an introduction to neuroscience, the brain science. Anybody heard of all the talk that's happening around brain science and contemporary neuroscience? Does it sound relatively familiar? Maybe you've seen it in Time Magazine, you've seen it in a bunch of articles, yeah. Well, here's the thing that's really interesting. If you look at the history of medicine, of healthcare, and say it's this long, neuroscience has only been around for this amount of time, so we are still learning. But what, what it says to us is that what we think, do, and pay attention to repeatedly over time changes the structure and function of our brains. Wow, that's the good news. The bad news is what we think, do, and pay attention to repeatedly over time 
changes the structure and function of our brain. So what that means is we may as, be, we may as well be intentional about what we're paying attention to because it matters. It shows up in our very presence in any moment. There's anybody been to London ever? Okay, have you, have you driven personally in London or been driven in London? So it's a couple of brave souls I see raising their hands. Okay, so like in New York, which is really beautiful, we've got north, south, east, and west, beautiful grid to drive. I mean, the, the traffic's not beautiful, but it's easy to figure out where you need to go. In London, it's like a spaghetti bowl. In order to be a cab driver that's licensed in London, you have to take this test called the knowledge. I mean, the name alone is intimidating. That would probably make me think twice. But it takes more than four years for many to study it and pass it. And here's what they did in this particular science. They said, hey, how about we um, look at the hippocampus, the part of the brain that's responsible for spatial navigation and memory. Let's see how that changes as people study and take this test. And what they found was the people who studied for this test year over year, the, the gray matter of the hippocampus began to thicken. There was cortical thickness. That's structural. What we learned about the Iowa gambling task, that was functional. This, the functional starts to impact our behavior. Structural means it is changing the brain tissue in our heads. So people who did that, they actually started to develop thicker cortical regions of the brain based on what they were doing. And all that helps us as we begin to be intentional about how we bring people together, how we bring connection, how we bring um, compassion and empathy into our work. Now think for a moment, what's empathy? Empathy is understanding others' feelings. But if we just did that, that might not be enough. That might just be sympathy, like a little child who's five, and you say, why are you sad? And they say, my friend is sad, or my mommy's sad. Right? They don't distinguish. So empathy is sympathy plus. It means understanding other people's feelings, but at the same time, having a clear discernment between what's yours and what's somebody, else, somebody else's. So the two together create empathy, and that is the fuel and launching point for compassion. Because the third element of that definition is how do we begin to ask ourselves this one question? When we see what's going on with somebody else, we understand what's ours and what's theirs, we ask this question, what would truly serve? And sometimes what would serve in compassion is to not take action but to hold safe space. And sometimes it's diving right in. But we won't know unless we ask the question because otherwise we just default to our ways of being that are typical for us. So when we think about how do we put some things into practice, there's this notion called stop. Stop, take a breath, observe, and proceed. Give yourself a minute to figure out how do you want to respond. And the way you can check in is three-point, check in with the head, what are your thoughts in the moment, check in the heart, what are the emotions, check in with the gut, like what are my intentions. And then see if you can see similarities and kindness in others, especially others who aren't like you. That's how we close the gap. And then checking the body, checking in, where do we see things? Do you know your body map? And in doing these things, it offers us the capacity to be able to do perspective taking, to maybe even discover some of our own personal biases and then be able to mitigate what they might be in action. Always remembering, ask, 
whether attention is matching your impact, and asking questions, more questions than telling, as we ask what would be of service. Thank you. Mindset Shift Exercise Our reality is largely based on perception and beliefs, not facts. Most ideas and theories come from experience and opinion, so much so that we come to view opinions and judgment as facts. Since we're all having our own experience, how can we know what's fact and what's opinion? We tend to tell stories about ourselves that are not false but hinder our ability to learn new things. For example, we assume we are not good with numbers or that we lack business skills. Once we understand that there's a difference between facts and opinion, we can recognize what opinions we hold about ourselves that we stop us growing as people. Facts versus opinion. A fact is something that measurable or always true. For example, 1 plus 1 equals 2 or Nebraska is a state. An opinion, however, is a viewer or judgment not necessarily based on facts. When pursuing a goal, what you view as fact can get in the way of your success. What you tell to yourself and what you've heard others say about you can come become so ingrained that you view these things as fact rather than perception or opinions. For instance, if you score low on a pre-algebra test in middle school, you may have told yourself that you're not good at math. Perhaps you just weren't developmentally ready for the concept of pre-algebra at the time or weren't properly prepared for the particular test. Experiencing repeated struggle struggles in math without positive support from others will reinforce your opinion that you are not talented in math. Throughout our lives, we created stories about ourselves and our abilities based on assessments. This disconnect between opinion and facts shapes who we become. We might not only take on challenges we feel fully equipped to handle, based on our experiences so far in essence we might allow our opinions about ourselves and the world to limit our potential the key to success is creating new story and the first step in that process is deconstructing your story list three negative opinions you hold about yourself for example i'm not no good at marketing I am terrible planner, I am too lazy to succeed, I'm, I'll never learn, earn a high salary. How did you form this negative opinion about yourself? Who or what circumstances contributed to these thoughts or belief? How long have you had these negative thoughts been with you or how was your behavior reinforced this belief? Can you list any actual facts that support these negative opinions? These three things that might be different or that you might be doing with your life if you did not believe this about yourself. What could you gain by challenging one of these beliefs? 
What could you study, plan, participate in, or learn about to improve in these areas? What small action you can do to challenge one of these beliefs? Hey everyone, it's Tara from the Education Department. Today, I'm here to check in with you on primary food. Let's start by closing our eyes. Take a minute to visualize someone in your life who's the picture of health and happiness. This person seems to light up every room they enter. Their positivity brightens every interaction that they have. Their skin and eyes are clear and radiant. They leave everyone they come into contact with feeling happy and satisfied. They have an it factor, and you feel that they've figured out something that you're struggling with. You might even know what you need to do, but are finding it challenging to take daily action toward it. It might be committing to a daily meditation practice so you can feel calm and focused at work and get that promotion. Perhaps finally leaving that toxic relationship or getting to therapy to start healing the relationship with your mother. Everyone has that thing they need to do. It's just a matter of taking consistent action. Now, envision yourself after you've just started to work towards this thing that you need to do. You don't have to have everything figured out, but just imagine how inspired and satisfied you'll feel after taking that first step. Really let that feeling sink in. Now open your eyes and notice any differences in how you feel, physically and mentally. People who make time for self-care glow from the inside out. Their skin, hair, nails, eyes, and voice reflect their inner balance. They're bursting with love and happiness. To put it simply, they're at peace because they're taking care of their primary needs, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Now close your eyes again. Take a minute to visualize someone in your life who gives off negative energy. This person is always frustrated, sad, or feeling stuck. They seem to constantly struggle with physical or emotional challenges. Maybe they're stressed or sick, or maybe they just have a bad case of negative thinking. This person actually feeds off negativity in the world and is sure to chew your ear off about how bummed they are all the time. Yet, they refuse to take action to move their energy. Every time you talk to this person, you leave feeling worried, sad, and depleted. Now open your eyes. We can all agree that when a person is always feeling down and giving off negative vibes, everyone who comes into contact with them starts to feel a little off. It can be hard when a close friend or family member is trapped in a negative place, especially if they're usually upbeat and energized. Now at this point, you know a little bit about primary food. You've identified areas in your own life that need some TLC, and maybe you've even started to think about how you want to work with clients in different areas of primary food. Joshua says healthy relationships, regular exercise, a fulfilling career, and a spiritual practice feed you even more than the food on your plate. Primary food is powerful stuff. Okay, let's take a few minutes right now to go through the circle of life to assess our primary food. One of the goals here at IAN is to help you develop your intuition. This way, you'll have an innate sense of when an area of primary food is out of alignment for you and the exact steps you need to take to course correct. 
We also teach you self-care strategies throughout the curriculum to help you regain balance when you stumble, because it happens to all of us, even Joshua. So grab a pen and paper and a copy of your circle of life, digital or physical. As we go through this exercise, feel free to pause me anytime to give yourself time to respond to the questions. All set? Let's get started. Right now, complete the circle of life exercise. Take time to look over each section and put a dot on the line to indicate your level of satisfaction with each area. A dot towards the center indicates dissatisfaction, while a dot towards the edge indicates satisfaction. For example, if your social life is really abundant, place a dot somewhere on the line near the outer edge of the circle. After, connect the dots to complete your circle of life. Now you have a clear visual representation of the imbalances in your life. After you're done with the exercise, make a list on your paper of the areas that you feel very satisfied with. Pause the video and take your time. I'll be here when you get back. Congratulations. Isn't it satisfying to acknowledge the areas you're doing great in? Take a deep breath in and out and smile. You are awesome and it's important to take this moment to honor yourself and let your happiness sink in. During self-check-ins, it's important to get down to the nitty-gritty of what is and isn't working. Take a moment to reflect on the actions you know bring you joy and satisfaction in each area of primary food. For example, affirmations, meditation, nature walks, morning pages. Those are a few examples of practices that might make you happy and calm. For instance, one area of primary food that I feel very satisfied with right now is relationships. One of my goals after my last primary food check-in was to connect more often with friends and family that live far away. When brainstorming specific actions to take, I wrote down email friends, set calendar reminder to call mom once a week, and set three Skype dates with family in Europe. When you do this exercise, be sure to write down specific actions you can take and schedule them in your calendar. Don't just think about it, do it. Now let's take a minute to assess the areas of the circle of life that you're feeling stuck in right now. Pause the video and take time to list the areas you'd like to improve. You might find you're chronically dissatisfied in the area you identified, or you might notice a particular area of primary food is a challenge for you at the moment because of specific circumstances. Let's take a minute to identify the source of your dissatisfaction. What's causing the pain here? Write down a few ideas for the root cause of what's happening for you. Getting clear on the source of your dissatisfaction is essential to health and happiness. Important to dig deep into the areas that appear over and over again in your check-ins. Is there something holding you back from satisfaction in a particular primary food category? Is there a big life change you need to make to reach the next level and be your happiest and healthiest? Or are there small changes you can start making right now? Often, consistent small changes are the most powerful. For example, you might take a side job to improve your financial situation, or boost happiness by practicing daily affirmations, or simply watching funny videos more often. Now that we've checked in on what's going well and what needs some TLC, let's solidify your action plan. Visualize yourself in one month, six months, by the end of this program, and in five years. Where do you see yourself? 
How do you live your life? What's a normal day for you? And is there such a thing as a normal day? Start living now as if you're already the absolute best at what you do. Treat yourself with utter care and love and see how things start to shift into place. How do you feel physically? Are you light and energized? Are your skin and eyes clear and radiant? Have you made peace with imperfection? Now pause the video one last time and put three bullet points describing future you under each time frame. One month, six months, at the end of the program, and in five years. So, for example, you'll write down under one month, underline it, then write three bullet points underneath that describe your vision for yourself in one month. Then do the same for six months, the end of the program, and in five years. Then underneath those three bullets, list one to three concrete action steps you'll take to move toward your vision for each time frame. step can you take today and what steps can you take consistently to transform into your highest version of yourself put them on your calendar and treat them like the most important meeting commit now put this paper up somewhere you'll see it often maybe on your bathroom mirror in your car or at your desk at work in future modules, I'll be back to check in with you on your primary food and hold you accountable for the vision and action steps you just committed to. Until then, check in with yourself or with your accountability coach at least every two weeks, even if it's just a five-minute conversation. I know you can do this, and I am so excited to witness your transformation to the happiest, healthiest version of yourself. Stay committed. Stay positive and I'll see you next time.